Let's go through every single package installed with a Linux install image. I'm going through the software included with Slackware, but these are all open source applications and libraries, so whether you're running Slackware like me, or Fedora, Debian, BSD, or even Mac or Windows, you can probably download, install, and try these on your computer. So chances are, you'll be able to learn something from this podcast. Let's get started. Now I want to talk about CryFS. It's a really cool application, it's nice and interactive, easy to talk about, but it doesn't happen until, like, I don't know, six packages from now, so it, I'm going to try to just kind of power through six, oh, these... The, the, these packages from ATK up to CryFS really, really quickly. Ready? We've already talked about ATK or ATSPI2 ATK. Uh, I think I skipped over ATSPI2 core. It's basically the same deal though. Accessibility stuff. ATK-2 is the accessibility accessibility toolkit. And then ATKMM is the accessibility toolkit for C++. I don't know what the MM stands for, but it's a pretty common appendix, appendage, in the um, sort of the GNOME world when they develop a C library for their own desktop, they very frequently, or somebody, uh, comes up with a C++ wrapper around that, and for whatever reason they append MM to the end of the the name of the library. We'll see it again later in Cairo MM. There's a bunch of other examples that I'm not thinking of off the top of my head, but it's a pretty common, um, I think, what is it, Cobra? No, Orbit? Orbit and Cobra? Are those two things? Corba? I don't know. The, there are things with MM at the end. So anyway, ATK MM C++ wrapper for C library. Audiophile. Audiophile is a library to help you ingest audio files. Pretty simple. Babel, B-A-B-L. It's a pixel converter. It, uh, pixels have different formats, uh, different aspect ratios, all kinds of weird things about pixels that you don't really think about. You just think, well, a pixel is that little tiny little dot of light on a big array, like a display, like a monitor, and, and that's what a pixel is. But it is more complex than that. Pixels have different formats. They have different like I said, aspect ratios, uh, there are different kinds of pixels and different manners in which you can express a, a, a single point of data. Babel helps uh, convert between those formats, which could be important if, if something was created in one application or on one platform needs to be created or uh, modified on another, Babel can step in and kind of do that conversion. Boost. Okay, this Boost is actually really useful too. It's not, not as interactive as CryFS, but it is an important one. Boost is the... it's... it's... It's C++ plus, so it's it's the add-on package for C++, and it's really really useful. A lot of it, it's just a bunch of header files, so it's not even like there's much to it, except there is. So I mean, if you've ever programmed anything, and I've never done a serious project in C++, I've done a couple of little projects in C++, but I've I've never I, I don't have the sort of hardened experience uh, of, of maintaining a package that people are actually using. That's not entirely true, actually. But I, I don't feel like, like the one application that a lot of people used that I developed with C++ was a, a really simple front end to um, like an FFM, FFmpeg conversion thing. And I, I developed a little application that people could put their video into and get it converted because at the time, one of the non-open source video editors that I had to support didn't understand like half the formats out there that people were actually using. Did they still pay to use this application? 
Yes, they did. N not my application. The video editor that didn't support basically half of the video formats that people were actually using. So I developed an FFmpeg um, front end so that they could just import all their or or point the you know point FFmpeg essentially at their video files and then convert them in bulk and and then do their video editing projects on this non-open source video editor that they were using. So. A lot of people did use that application, I did have to support it, but it was such a simple application with so few expectations and so few requirements, it, it, it was pretty easy to do. But anyway, that's not really important because I don't even think I used Boost for that. I've used Boost for other things though, just little commands that I've written in C++, and, and it's great. Boost is fantastic. So if you've ever written a program in a non-scripting language, in some scripting languages as well, but, but I think this is probably more common in something that's you know a compiled language if you've written something in a compiled language then you probably know that sometimes there are stupid little things that you have to do with your application or in your code that you just don't think you have you, you should have to think about and it's fair because you know that a million other people have done exactly the same thing and it gets really annoying when you're sitting there thinking oh yeah i need to account for i don't know leap year and and how am i going to calculate whether or not it's a leap year and then you have to look up what what the defining factors are of a leap year and how you how mathematically you can determine like if you take the current year and then divide it by something and then if if it's if it's got a modulo or not and so you're just you're you're doing this thing and, and in the back of your mind you're just thinking someone has already done all of this several times and it's true every programming student in their, you know, programming 101 or maybe 102 class have has done that exercise. So it is true. It's It's been done before. And so you go to places like Stack Overflow and just see if someone's dumped some code into a, a, a web page that you could just, just copy and paste. And sometimes that works, but then, then again, it's like the a problem with compiled programming languages, I would say, is, I mean, I, I, I say this on a philosophical level, I'm not saying I know the fix. Um, a problem with compiled languages is that in order to demonstrate a, a basic concept, a lot of times it is a self-contained uh, program. So, in other words, it's very difficult, it seems, to demonstrate just a snippet of something, because the snippet won't run without all of the scaffolding around it. So with a scripted language, you can you can do something like, um, well, something really simple. Someone says, how do you print a message to output in uh, Python? And you can tell them, well, print parentheses, quote, hello world, close quote, close parentheses. And they can, they can open up a terminal, type in Python or Python 3, and then run that command, and it will it will do what they want it to. Or they could copy and paste that one line, dump it into a file, run that file with Python, python3 dot slash myfile.txt, and it'll, again, it'll work. One line of code works. If you, if someone says, how do you print something in, for instance, C++, well, it's really easy. It's just C out, uh, uh, what is it, less, less than, yeah, less than, less than, uh, quote, hello world, close quote, semicolon. Simple as that. Great. W well, 
what do they do with that line of code? I mean, it, what what they need to do is is make a file, include IO stream, create a a function int main parentheses parentheses semi uh, not semicolon uh, curly brace and well. And then either specify that they're using namespace std or prepend c out with std colon colon and then do the line and then return zero semicolon curly brace. And then they can compile it with some compiler and then they can run the compiled application to see that one line of code function the way that you've described. So ex extrapolate that, expand that into something much, much larger. Like, okay, well, I just want to know how to determine whether something's a leap year. Well, now you've got sample code, but you have to put that sample code somewhere. You have to create a function for it. You have to understand where that function belongs, what can access that function, all of the different things that you would need to know to kind of integrate that 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 sample code or, or whatever into your application. It's not impossible. It's just not something where you can copy and paste five lines or 10 lines or 100 lines and just paste it into your into your source code you have to really work at integrating it it's it's just not quite as modular i guess as as you kind of want it to be like wouldn't it be cool if there was just a way to just surround your your stolen code your borrowed code uh with i don't know some magic words and just paste it into your bait your source code and then just point to that file and just say, I, I don't know how to do the thing, but someone told me that that file does the thing. So just use that, you know, and maybe all you would need to know is like the input and the output, which I mean, ideally that that is how it works. And that does, that kind of can work. Um, but you have to know how to do that. Boost is basically that. It has a bunch of functions in it that other people have figured out how to make them go, and you can use those. Now, you have to understand what those functions are. You have to understand what you're being provided with Boost in order to make good use of them. So it's, it isn't magic. You don't install Boost and then suddenly C++, just, you just you know, you still have to know like what to tell C++ to leverage, but that is what Boost is. It's a bunch of free code in one big package that you can put onto your system and kind of just know that you have it there. So there's stuff for graphing, there's stuff for date and time, there's stuff for just general math, for regular expressions, for file system recognition uh, or interaction. Uh, there's there, you know, and it's not all specific, like, it's not like Boost has the only solution to some of these things. Like, there's a JSON library in Boost that, you know, you could argue is excessive because there are lots of header files out there to help you parse uh, JSON in C++. It's a pretty common thing. So it, it isn't necessarily that Boost has the only way of doing things. It's just a bunch of way. It's a bunch of things all in one place. If you install Boost as a C++ programmer, then you can kind of happily feel pretty sure that that you're going to have a, a tool for, for a lot of different things. A lot of the basic functionality that, that you would want out of C++, it'll be there in Boost. I mean, honestly, it's a little bit like the Apache Commons in Java. A bunch of really great libraries, many of which are kind of redundant to some other library, or those libraries are redundant to Apache Commons. Either way, they're there, they exist, you can install them, you can use them in your applications. That's what Boost is. It's there, it exists, you can use it when you're writing code, and you don't have to think about all the mental gymnastics required to 
parse a certain kind of file or to calculate a certain value because Boost has that included. Now, as I say, the one thing that you do still have to figure out is how to is how Boost handles it, and, and how do you then use what Boost gives you back. And there's a learning curve there, honestly. It doesn't just happen for, for totally for free. You have to you have to know what to do with, with what's been parsed. So, like, if you are parsing JSON with Boost, okay, great. You've been able to point Boost at a JSON file, but what do you, how does it, understand that data how how could you then extract for instance a a value a specific value from that json file out of the out of the entity that that your c++ program with boost has created you 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 would have to look that up you have to know that so th- there's you know there are there is a learning curve with with any new library that you're using it's just someone else has written the code so you don't know what it gives you back it, you don't you know you can't just make up the data structure you have to understand how that data has been ingested how it's being structured and then how you can access it Speaking of accessing things, I don't know why I needed a segue there. Anyway, uh, Cairo is next. Cairo is a drawing library or a rendering library, I guess. Uh, it's it's interesting. Like if you if you start programming, a lot of times you you start kind of with commands, you know, like terminal commands. Like you're just writing little programs that run in in text because. That's enough for you to worry about at first. But eventually you turn your eye to graphical applications, and that introduces you to this whole new world of libraries and interactions that you need to understand that probably the um, the, the text-based applications that you started with didn't prepare you for properly, at least in my experience. And uh, and it's just a whole new thing. It's like it's like relearning everything over again. But one of the one, one part of that on a very low level is the Cairo library. Cairo allows you with your C or C++ with Cairo MM code to tell the computer to to just draw pixels on the screen. Like you can it's just you you essentially have a canvas upon which you can now draw. How do you draw? Well, you draw with values. You draw with with uh, vectors and things like that. You you, you specify um, positions on the screen, and and Cairo understands that if you want to draw a, a Bezier curve, then you're going to give it you know the, the start point, the end point, and I don't know a sign value or something like that. I haven't looked at the code, uh, and probably if I did, I wouldn't understand it anyway. I don't know anything about shapes. Um, but yeah, it uses, you know, like, geometry and stuff to draw things onto the screen. And that's what Cairo is used for. Cairo is what was built, uh, you know, as most everything was, uh, for, for graphics anyway, uh, on Linux, for X11, X11, Xzorg dot whatever, X dot org, Zorg. Um, so that's what it that's what it's intended to do, but uh, it will work with Wayland. Um, Wayland doesn't have um, doesn't really care about what you use to produce pixels uh, as long as you can write data to a shared buffer. Then Wayland can 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 use that. So you can use Cairo software rendering. You can use Cairo on OpenGL in Wayland. You can use OpenGL directly and not use Cairo at all. So lots of different options on Wayland. And uh, on X11, I mean, you've got other options as well, but Cairo is, is kind of the, uh, that, that's a big one for sure. So Cairo, Cairo MM, those are, those are nice to have. Um, 
Next up is Cfit, what is it? Cfits.io, and what that is is it's a fits file subroutine library, which is, I guess, a Fortran thing. Apparently, I don't know exactly what this is, but it is that. So this is a C library that reads and writes fits. That's F-I-T-S um, data files and. I think that has something to do with Fortran, because in the description it says a set of Fortran callable wrapper routines is also included. So, I don't know. Or maybe maybe Fortran is just, it just happens to be included in this library for some reason. But yeah, that's F-I-T-S, and I really don't know what that is. Shall we look? FITS format. Let's see if, if the internet knows. A primer on the FITS uh, format is flexible image transport system, maybe? Yeah, that's got to be it, actually. Uh, and widely used with astronomy. There you go. I did not know. That's really actually quite interesting. I'm glad I looked that up. Uh, so it has probably nothing to do with Fortran and has everything to do with astronomy. Uh, so that's CFITS.io. Next up is chmlib. Chmlib is a small library designed for accessing uh, Microsoft ITSS files. Now, apparently, the ITSS file format is used for Microsoft uh, HTML help files, which apparently is abbreviated .chm, and, and chmlib will help you access chmlib's uh, um, files. So, this is kind of what I was talking about with Boost too. You know, like there's these all there's all these file formats out there, and and their advantage usually, ideally, is that they have structure. So a programming language, you can tell a programming language what to expect as it scans through this file, and certain characters or certain indentation levels or or whatever this format is using can trigger a different action on your programming language's part. So, for instance, if you are trying to parse, um, let's say, a markdown, then you might you might look at markdown, at the specification of markdown. Oh yeah, there isn't one. Okay. You might look at the specification of commonmark at commonmark.org and, and devise a way of of parsing markdown. You think, okay, well, if I, if I encounter a single hash character, an octothorpe, followed by a space, followed by any text, and then a new line character, I know, by the definition of common mark, that that's a title. That's an H1 heading. And so you could do something with that. You, you would know what that was based on, on the data that was in the file. And then you know if, if you find another single hash, space, anything, new line, that you've got, well, new line, new line, I guess, um, then you've got a title. And so you could you could call those chapter headings, or, or maybe that's the book level uh, heading. And then hash hash space, any string, new line, new line, would be your chapter heading or your sections or whatever, you know, the hierarchy you're, you're going to use. And if, if you don't have a library to do that, then you are doing that in a programming language. You are reading a line and then breaking it up into its component parts, analyzing those component parts, usually with lots and lots of checks, like, or regex or something, where you're, you're, you're asking, is that first character this, followed by this, followed by that? No? Okay, well, what about this, this, and then that, and then that? No? Okay. Well, what about this, 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 and then a space, and then, you know, and so it's just lots, of, it can be very arduous. And a lot of times, you, you, you kind of get the feeling, or at least I do, that you're not doing it as efficiently as you might, you know, as arguably could be possible. So it's always nice to have that little boost or other other library that that you feel probably is doing it better than you would do it by hand. 
I don't know why, personally, I would ever need to access a chmlib file. I'm relatively sure that I don't even know what that is. I mean, I, I do. It's a Microsoft ITSS file, apparently. And then that's apparently a format of HTML help. So I'm, I'm, I'm imagining it's some kind of, you know, it's like online documentation or the system on your, on the computer documentation file. Um, if, if you ever need to like convert that or something, then chmlib is, is a library that someone else has already figured out. It's going to look at that data structure. And as long as it's a valid chm file, then this thing is going to be able to parse it for you. you you'll probably be able to format it to something else, like maybe a, a KDE help file or a, a, some other kind of help file. So it seems really useful for somebody. Next up is C Lucene, text search engine. C Lucene is a C++ port. There's no MM on this one. It's a C++ port of Lucene. It's a high-performance, full-featured text search engine written in C++. Uh, yeah, Lucene is um, sort of, as far as I know, kind of like the the default when you think of an open-source search algorithm, a lot of people think of Lucene. I've used Lucene in a couple of projects at, at, um, at a job, and I actually, I think I used PyLucene specifically. Lucene itself, Lucene Core, is a Java library. You can get, you can learn more about it, find it at lucene.apache.org. So it's a Java library, so you you, you can use it in your in your Java project, which is useful, or might be useful depending on what your project is, I guess. Um, but there's a Python, there are Python bindings for it in the form of PyLucene, and then there are, well, and then there is uh, this other project that I've just learned about, uh, CLucene, which is a C++ um, implementation of, of Lucene. It's news to me, uh, and I, I don't have any thoughts on it, really. It's just, it, yeah, it's a good thing to have, right? I mean, Java, Python, C++, what, what more do you need? Like, that, that's a pretty good array of, of, of different options. And look at that. We're up to CryFS. So let's go get some coffee. We'll come back. We'll talk about CryFS. <laughs> I'm back. I've got my coffee, and this is—I I think I've had a cup of this coffee on this show before, but um, maybe not. I mean, well, definitely, it's Bomber. I had that when I first moved to the South Island of New Zealand. Uh, coincidentally, I mean, it had nothing to do with me moving. It was just that a, a very, very nice listener sent me a housewarming gift of a bunch of of these coffees, and one of them was Bomber, and it was quite good. And I'm back to Bomber now, um, just because that's—that was the sort of one of the. That's one of their default coffees that they sell at Flight Coffee. I should really, honestly, just do a new podcast, just you know, about how great Flight Coffee is. I guess because I, I just keep. I didn't mean to become like a fan of Flight Coffee, but they have really great coffee that I can get just through mail order, and that makes it really convenient. I mean, I can go to the to the store and get coffee as well, but I mean, it's not nearly as good as Flight Coffee, and it is just so nice. They're, they're like up in Auckland or something, so it's, it's, they're nowhere near me, but yeah, I should definitely just do a podcast about that. But I guess for now, 
small bursts of coffee talk on this podcast is probably sufficient to reflect my my apparent uh, dedicated fandom of flight coffee. So th- this coffee is really good, legitimately. Like Bomber, I actually didn't remember it being this good. I thought I liked, uh, what was it called? Milky, I think is what it was called. And I, I still think I do like that, but, but Bomber is really solid. And when I say it's solid, I mean kind of like that's the flavor it gives you. you. You know, you 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 drink it, and it just feels exactly like what coffee is supposed to feel like. It is. It, it tastes exactly like. Well, it, to my mind, it tastes like it smells like that coffee smell that people say, "Oh, I like the smell of coffee, but I don't like the taste." I kind of feel like Bomber delivers on the promise. Probably not. Like probably to someone who doesn't like coffee, that this this is probably still not exactly what they're smelling. But to me, I, I feel like that's kind of the feeling that it gives gives me. So I, I, I do like Bomber. It's very good. It's just a rich, but not, you know, it's not strong. It's just rich. There's a difference between rich coffee and strong coffee, I think. And Bomber just, it, it really, it, it captures just that kind of strong coffee foundation without having a whole lot of, you know, burnt overtones uh, floating around on top, as it were. Um, so th- th- that's Bomber. The, the really exciting thing, though, is that Flight right now has a winter special coffee, like a coffee just for the winter. It's it's just marketing stuff, honestly, but it's called Big Cozy. <laughs> Big Cozy, um, which, I mean, come on. I mean, as marketing goes, that's pretty good, right? A, a winter coffee called Big Cozy. Uh, it's, a, it's a winter coffee because in New Zealand it's winter, so if you're listening to this elsewhere... As I record it, you're thinking that's a weird time to have a winter coffee. No, it's not. It actually makes perfect sense. Um, So I don't know. I'm going to get a bag of that. So you will hear a report about Big Cozy uh, soon-ish. But but for now, bomber, and it is very good. Highly recommended if you happen to be in New Zealand and want a good cup of coffee. Actually, honestly, you can pretty much go to any... Anywhere, anywhere in New Zealand has good coffee. It's it's astonishing. Like New Zealand doesn't know how to do bad coffee. It, it's just not in their culture. Like they never got trained on making drip coffee and leaving it on the burner for twelve hours like you're supposed to do. Um, they just think that every coffee has to be like out of an espresso machine. So like the 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 worst quote the quote unquote worst coffee you can get. Well, technically is like instant coffee, but can we agree that that's not coffee? So the worst coffee you can get is an Americano, where they've they've gone to all the trouble of making an amazing cup of coffee and then they just water it down with boiling water. And it's delicious. It's amazing. So yeah, it's it's very funny to live in New Zealand as a coffee uh, f- fan because it's really it's an embarrassment of of wealth. Okay, let's talk a little bit about uh, some listener feedback actually. So Hacker Defo uh gave me sort of my new favorite website as a read happened to drop it into a comment on Mastodon. I don't know that Hacker Defo meant for this to be um, sort of such a revelation. Probably not. I think he was just helpfully referring to um, this thing about um, Argon 2. But uh, this is an amazing site. So it's it's OWASP.org. You, you may already know OWASP. I knew of OWASP. I just, just never occurred to me to go to OWASP, the website, and and click around. Uh, and if you go to OWASP and click around, um, you might still not find what Hacker Defo sent me. 
I couldn't exactly find the link from like the main page. I, I could just I might just be overlooking it, but I I I was not able to find it immediately. So the place to go on OWASP.org, if you're like me and love a good read about technology, is uh, cheat sheet series.owasp.org and there is just there's a bunch of just really great documentation on all manner of of technology there's stuff like ajax security um abuse case access control attack surface analysis authentication it just gives you like all the information you need on all the different things the specific one that hacker defo sent to me that i that i that I read initially was uh, it's called passwords password storage cheat sheet and I mean when they say cheat sheet I don't know why they call it a cheat sheet it's not a cheat sheet I mean it's a full fledged article it isn't just like you know a couple of bullet points it's 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 a whole it's a whole article about the, the smart way to store a password a, a, you know as a programmer or a developer I should say I guess because it's not necessarily about programming, but just kind of like if you're a computer user and you are uh, architecting, I've never used that word in earnest before, um, if you are architecting something for other people to use or for yourself to use, um, then how would you go about thinking about, well, what's the, the right way to, to store passwords? And you might think, oh, well, I need to encrypt those passwords, right? Well, do you? Because hashing and encryption are both are both, I mean, they both sort of keep sensitive data safe, but, but if it's encrypted, then, then how, what's the advantage to, to encryption in, in a password? And, and this article points out that hashing is a one-way function. That is, it's impossible to quote-unquote decrypt a hash and obtain the original plain text value. Hashing is appropriate for password validation. Even if an attacker obtains the hashed password, they can't enter it into an application's password field and log in as the, the victim because they just has they just have this hashed value. Now encryption is a two-way function, meaning that the original plain text by design can be retrieved. Encryption is appropriate for storing data such as a user's um, a user's email address because the data is displayed in plain text on the in the user's profile. So you would encrypt it one in one place and then you would decrypt it for the display. Uh, hashing it that would be it wouldn't really work. That, that's not a useful thing. Uh, and so this article this article explains that uh, it explains other principles like salting and peppering. Uh, it talks about Argon2 specifically. Argon2, the winner of 2015 password hashing competition. There are three different versions of the algorithm. Blah blah blah. And it, it goes into what exactly is happening, how it works, uh, and then it it talks also about Scrypt and bcrypt and uh, a bunch of other options that that you know you might need for older systems or whatever so or that you just might encounter you might be dealing with as you port something over so yeah really really just amazing amazing article and and there are let's i don't know, scroll down scroll up let's say uh 80 80 articles on here um it's going to keep me so busy for so long it's just it is really, truly one of my new favorite websites. This this is the kind of thing. I did recently a Hacker Public Radio uh, episode about why was the internet boring. And 
And this is the kind of thing that I miss from the internet. This is exactly the thing I was missing when I was recording that episode, because this is the kind of information, honest, useful information that I just, I feel like we've lost sight of on the internet. Uh, Wikipedia notwithstanding, obviously, but this is very pointed, right? I mean, Wikipedia gives you a lot of context. It doesn't so much give you sort of like, it doesn't talk to you as if though you were a specific audience. This cheat sheet series.owasp.org talks to you exactly on uh, for who you are. And, and I'm, I'm where what you are is just like me, a, a Linux hobbyist, hacker, geek, person who wants to know all of the things. Whether you're or not you're ever going to use it, you still want to understand it. It's right here. Cheatsheetseries.owasp.org. Go there, read it, bookmark it, whatever you do to, um, to, to track things. It's really, really cool. So, I mean, we're talking about encryption. Let's talk about CryFS, because CryFS is an encrypted directory. That's what CryFS provides. It is an encrypted directory that you can mount as if though it was a file system. Why is that significant? Why is that important? So many reasons. So the first most obvious one is when you put stuff on a cloud, you are putting stuff on, surprise, surprise, somebody else's computer. The cloud uh, has this kind of mythos around it that it is not someone else's computer. It is the cloud. It's lots of computers. And, and, and those files, they don't really live on, like, a computer. They live on all the computers and none of the computers all at the same time. It's, it's silly. Like, I, I feel like people, that's what people think about it, you know, because, because it's a cloud, so that, that, that sort of brings to mind a particulate, um, coalescing sort of entity of nodes. And that's what a cloud is. I mean, it's a cluster of computers. So lots of computers that know about each other and and they're sharing data. They're running some kind of distributed file system, essentially. And when file gets written to one, then it's, it, it's propagated around to others, possibly, potentially, depending on the model being used. And, and so, yeah, it doesn't exactly live on a computer. I mean, it does, but it's not intended to. The, a file could be on any given node within that cluster at any given time, depending on what cycle of the syncing process that that distributed file system is in at any given time. I lost track of that sentence. But anyway, um, people kind of think, well, it's not really not really being stored it's like it's on the cloud so it's just being it's just part of the cloud now it's just it's just particles and it's just not quite like that right i mean the file is there it the, the data has been written it can be retrieved and so when you put your stuff on a cloud yeah sure you're not sending it to like steve in in, in his mom's basement proverbially it, but but you are you're sending it to somebody you're sending it to a, a group of computers and and there are lots of people around who can access that data for one reason or another whether it's to help customers or well that's a myth um whether it's to you know administer uh, the file system to keep it running to do checks and stuff like that or or, or to to program new front ends for it or whatever i mean the data is there it can be accessed now a lot of data doesn't really matter much it doesn't it's just silly stuff there's a lot of data out there now you might think well i'm just sending my vacation photos up to the cloud it's not it isn't that big of a deal like i don't care if people see my vacation photos go ahead look at them i posted them to my favorite social media site anyway so who cares if 
if uh, some ad, if some intern at uh, Google uh, Drive can look at my vacation photos or Dropbox or Microsoft OneDrive, whatever. Um, and and that might be true. You know, like a lot of the data now that we that we're distributing up there into the cloud it is it's essentially a bunch of shared data with a horrible licensing scheme like we you know it's just like it's just data and i guess we all think that as as time progresses um none of that stuff will be ever abused in any way because that's just not how things go it's just not how it works everyone knows that the data that we've saved to someone else's computer is is precious and no one would ever violate any kind of expectation for that. And it does kind of make you wonder about like machine learning and and things like that. Like how much of that data has 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 been used to train, you know, algorithms that I don't know, do facial recognition for instance or whatever. So, in other words, when you put data on another computer, what it's being used for is really out of your control. That's not something that you can influence. Even if you include like a license file with your photos or with your with your documentation, or your pages and pages of of text, your 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 home budget, your your journal entries or or whatever you're doing, like your your programming practice, like all of the things that you might put onto a cloud, even if you put like a licensing statement or something, you can't control what someone else is doing with that thing. I mean, you can't really control what people are doing with your with your code, for instance. I mean, or your applications that you're putting online. I mean, it's just you know, it's it's out there, and then that's the nature of 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 distributed computing. But what you could do for things that you don't necessarily want to give people the option about is you could encrypt it. You just put it into a a, a you could scramble it up and zip that up and put it onto the cloud. Now the disadvantage to that is that then every time you try to access it on the cloud, you have to go through the process of unencrypting it. And that just seems kind of counter to the point. You're putting it on the cloud so that you have quick and easy access to it from anywhere. And and so if you, the process of making it difficult for someone else to access it often means that it becomes difficult for you to access it. So CryFS solves that problem because what it can do is it can create an encrypted directory on a cloud storage device if you want, or on a thumb drive, or just on your computer. And and then you can, whenever you want to access that, you just you just mount it as if though it was a hard drive. Now, if you've ever used, and this is this is going back a ways, if you've ever used a program called TrueCrypt, then that's basically the same thing. This is kind of within this is within that that realm of of um of of a methodology so or or i think on other computers now i think they have these things too like file vaults and things like that so if you're familiar with that concept then this is the same thing it's just it's it's just a nice open source one and that you can't really have too many of those can you so i'm going to go to a temporary directory here and i'm going to do cryfs and then I need to just—I need to create a a, a vault, uh, basically. I need to create my encrypted f- file store. So cryfs, um, I'll just call it my vault. And then I'm gonna need to tell it where I want it to mount. So I think I'm on Slackware, so I'll just do a slash mnt slash hd for hard drive. That exists. That just pre-exists on Slackware. It's a it's a mount point that you can use. So I'm doing that. Uh, it says, could not find base directory. Do you want to create it? So the base directory that it's referring to there is my vault. The That's going to be the place where I put all my encrypted files. So I will, or, or the, rather, that's the 
the infrastructure that will contain my encrypted files. So I'm going to do a yes to that. Oh, and it says you can't, I co couldn't, couldn't write to that specific mount directory. Okay. So that's because slash mnt, of course, is outside of my home directory. So I'm going to create, I'm going to make dir uh, my fake, or I'll just call it fake hd. Actually, you know what? I'll call it hd fake there. So now I've got hd fake in, in my current directory, and that seems reasonable to me. So now I'm going to do my cryfs my vault to hd fake. Uh, it says um, use default settings. Yes. Now it's generating a, an encryption key. Uh, it can take some time. It's already done though. Uh, password. I'll put in bogus one two three bogus one two three. Uh, and now it's deriving an encryption key. This can take some time, and indeed, indeed, indeed it does. At least on my system. And I'm using a pretty fast system. Okay, so that's done now. And it says it, it gives me in. You know, in text it says generating secure, uh, where does it say, oh, mounting file system. To unmount, do this, cryfs-unmount, and then the path to the place where it's mounted, which of course is uh, home, clatu, uh, hd fake. Okay, so let's look in hd fake. Nothing there yet. Well, that's no surprise, I haven't created any files there. Um, let's look in my vault, though. Now, my vault has cryfs.config and something called ec6, don't really know what that is. So you don't really mess around with my vault. I mean, that wasn't like a threat that sounded vaguely threatening. You don't mess around with your cryfs sort of base directory. You interact with the mounted file system. So for instance, I could do an echo quote hello world redirect to uh, what is it hd fake hello.txt. So I've just created a file now called hello.txt containing the string hello world, um, strings, uh, and, and I've put that into HD fake. So if I, um, if I do a mount pipe grep fake, then it does detect that home clatu my vault is mounted on home clatu HD fake type fuse.cryfs owned by me and my group. Lots of different permissions read, read, write, no suid, no dev, and so on. Uh, and so I've got, I've got this file. And if I do a cat on HD fake hello.txt, it says hello world. So I have access to it. Okay, so I've got I've got a file system here that 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 acts like any other file system. I can put whatever data I want to in that file system. In fact, I will. I'm gonna copy a pixel dot webp into hdfake. So now I've got two files in hdfake. I've got hello.txt and a literally one pixel saved as a webp file. Now I'm going to do what it told me to do: cryfs unmount uh, hdfake. It unmounts that, and now if I do an ls into hd fake, it's empty. So, so that was just a mount point. There wasn't really data there. It was just a mount point for an encrypted file system. That encrypted file system, of course, is the the contents of my vault. And again, you wouldn't want to mess around with that with that directory, really. That that one is that that one's the encrypted data. Uh, you can look around in it. I mean, I'm going to do an ls r in my vault, I guess. And uh, I see that in my vault 525, there is a file called fc122220ea74 and so on. Uh, my vault 788 has a file called 0e1531f3 and so on. My vault ec6, my vault uh, ec6 has another file with a random string as a name. So 
There's a bunch of stuff in there, it's just not apparently useful. You can also open up if you want cryfs config, uh, and it's not very useful either. It's a bunch of binary data that won't mean anything to you. So that's what you that's what you have is cryf or uh, rather yeah cryfs. You've got some kind of vault of cryfs. Now, if you want to see all that data again, of course you do a cry cry uh, cryfs my vault hd fake, and now it's asking, of course, for a password. Okay, well I'll type in my password of bogus one two three. It says it's deriving the encryption key. This can take some time. It does take a little bit of time, but not too much time. And then it mounts the thing again. It's an HD fake. So if I do an LS on HD fake, remember I did it just moments ago and it was empty. Hey, there's there's files there now. Hello.txt and pixel.webp. And if I do a cat on HD fake hello.txt, I get the string hello world. And if I were to look at that pixel, I would see literally a single pixel saved as a web.p. So in other words, that this directory, this cryfs uh, structure on its own is meaningless, but to decrypt it, you just mount it. So it, it's, it, the, there's no, you know, like your other options are doing things like, well, for instance, gpg. You could do this with gpg. You could create a file called, I don't know, hello.txt, I guess, and then you could just run that through your gpg and create a, an encrypted file, uh, an encrypted version of that file, and then every time you wanted to open that file, you would use gpg to decrypt the file, and to open, you know, you would open up the decrypted version, you would save your changes, and then you would recreate a new encrypted version of that file. It It is not easy. Um, I have an application called Credit that does that does that sort of thing instantly, or not, in, yeah, instantly, um, dynamically, for for files and it, it opens the file up in Emacs and because credit cr encrypted edit it was the, the 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 reasoning behind that so it's it's, an, it's a way to basically store your just everyday text files as GPG should you choose to do so and then just open it up in your your default text editor and and that decryption just goes to your RAM it doesn't it doesn't get extracted and saved onto your hard drive it gets decrypted to a RAM disk where you can spend time to edit the file, do whatever you need to do. Once you save it, then it goes back, it, it gets zipped, or it gets uh, encrypted again and saved back to where it used to be. It's a pretty handy little application, but it, it's, it is very specific to text files, so you wouldn't, you wouldn't use that for, like, pixel.web.p, or webp, like, that wouldn't work. So, cryfs is, is a very pragmatic kind of, like, here's a, here's a bunch of encrypted data, let's treat it like a, a mounted file system, you can interact with all the different file types. You can do this as a user, obviously. You notice I didn't do a sudo command for this. This was all as a user. I just created a directory somewhere on my file system, and I use that as kind of the, the mount point for the encrypted data, the, the decrypted data. And then when I'm done, I unmount it, and everything gets encrypted again and saved back into this cryfs uh, little vault. It's really, really useful. Um, a long time ago, there was something called TrueCrypt, which people kind of got nervous about because no one knew who was developing it or something, and I think it was open source, but no one had, like, bothered to audit the code or something weird like that. Like, people really kind of were getting nervous about it, and then one day the, the developer just up and quit, just said, uh, TrueCrypt is over. I'm not developing this application anymore, and people... 
it got forked, so people like finally did a end-to-end audit, and and I think they said it was fine. Uh, and then there have been forks since then. I think the big fork, the the big one, has been VeraCrypt. And I think there's probably still an argument that VeraCrypt is really useful because CryFS, you're possibly not likely to have it installed by default on a lot of other systems. Um, so it. I mean, you might. I don't know. Let's let's look really quick. It says download CryFS, Ubuntu, Debian, or other. Let's go other. Uh, Mac OS and Windows. So you can get it on both of those two things. Um, so yeah, I guess I guess realistically, you could probably you could probably uh, use CryFS on on all your devices if if you you know I mean if 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 you have it loaded on those devices, like you would need the freedom to do that. Uh, Mac OS, it looks like it uses Homebrew, and then Windows, I don't know, it just uses whatever Windows uses, I guess. Um, so you could, you could use CryFS, I guess, across devices, just as much as Veracrypt, certainly. So, uh, or what I remember of Veracrypt, I haven't used Veracrypt in ages. But, um, yeah, CryFS, I mean, it's really, really useful. It is just such, I think the, the reason it's so useful is because it is so seamless. It's just really simple to get it encrypted and decrypted. There, it, it's a very natural, uh, workflow. And that's important for this sort of thing. So the cool thing about CryFS, one of the many cool things about CryFS, is that you can put it, you could save the, the, my vault, the, the, the file with, or the directory rather, with a bunch of nonsense files in it. You can put that on a, for instance, a Dropbox account, or a Google Drive, or a Microsoft OneDrive, to, to other, to other computers, you know, to a file system, it's just, it's just a directory with, with files in it, with data. So you can put it anywhere. You can put it on someone else's computer. You can put it on someone else's cloud, but every, so, so then you, you go to that cloud or that, 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 that storage, let's say, uh, you, you access it however you access it. I mean, I think, you know, I, I would imagine maybe that Dropbox would probably be for a Linux user, probably be the, the easier one. Cause I don't, I don't, I don't think Google has a Google Drive thing for Linux yet still, and I don't think Microsoft OneDrive probably has anything for Linux. I mean, believe me, I know Microsoft loves open source, so they may well have a OneDrive um, sort of plugin or something for Linux, uh, but if not, then you wouldn't probably find that very useful. So I know that Dropbox historically at least again i haven't used it in ages historically i know dropbox did have like a plugin or a you know a, a, an application a desktop application for dropbox so you could get dropbox i guess and mount or you know put it on your computer and then you would have a directory that syncs constantly back to dropbox someone else's computer put your vault of CryFS nonsense data onto the Dropbox. And then every time you want to, anytime you want to access information in there, you just mount with CryFS, CryFS, you know, uh, slash home, slash Klaatu, slash Dropbox, slash my vault, space, uh, home, Klaatu, HD fake. And now you're essentially, you're copy, you know, you're decrypting and copying all the data out of your little Dropbox thing and putting it to, into a, a mounted file system. Dropbox doesn't know you're doing this. All it knows is that there's a bunch of random binary data in a directory. So you can use your mounted uh, data, you can add new files, 
edit existing ones, remove them, whatever you want to do. And then when you unmount, all that data goes back into the vault. And then that's that encrypted data is what Dropbox syncs back up to somebody else's computer. Would it be better to just have a next cloud install? Um, maybe, but Nextcloud, I mean, that's, that's kind of tough. And, and honestly, like Nextcloud may be on someone else's computer too. I, I run Nextcloud here and there, but I mean, it's not on my machine. It's on like some server that I rent from, you know, I don't know, some, some server provider out there. So is that better? Might I want to encrypt it? Yeah, maybe. So CryptFS is, uh, or <laughs> CryFS, CryFS is really, um, just seems really useful. Seems like a really good idea. Uh, I know that there are other options too. There's like LVM and stuff like that that has, uh, or Lux really. But CryFS, I mean, as you have seen, really easy. CryFS, path to your encrypted nonsense data, path to some local folder within your home directory where you want that data to magically appear. And when you're done with it, you just unmount it. The, the, that's a great workflow, fantastic workflow. So if you're not using CryFS, think about it. It is right here on your Slackware system already. It's really easy to use. It's available for other systems, so you could use it on Slackware at home and then go to work and access data uh, for whatever reason. I don't know why you would be doing that at work. I mean, I don't know. I mean, maybe you needed to, I don't know. That sounds like shadow IT to me, but you know what? We're the type of people who read OWASP.org, so I think it's okay. So access it at work uh, with CryFS uh, on your Windows machine or your Mac machine, and, and everything's everything will still be there. You can read and write data, and no one will know that you've done it. That's not a guarantee. I'm just saying, ideally, no one will know that you've done it. I don't know who's monitoring your work computer. Okay, one last, just to get through the Cs. I might, might as well finish it off. We've just got one left. So CryptoPP is a library of cryptographic schemes. Crypto++ library is a free C++ class library of cryptographic schemes. Um, if you go to CryptoPP.com, then sure enough, it, it is a cryptographic library. It's a bunch of C++ stuff, uh, and it, it tells you exactly the algorithms that it supports. And there's a bunch of them. GCM, CCM, EAX, um... AES, ARIA, Blowf, not, not Blowf? Yeah, Blowfish, um, D, yeah, Triple DES, and, and it just goes on and on. I mean, I'm just, I'm just randomly picking out the ones that are vaguely familiar to me. ECDSA, um, yeah, so there's a bunch of them here, and obviously, just, just like Boost, just like all the other ones that I was talking about, I mean, these are free, this is free code that, actually, technically, it's public domain code, which is kind of weird to me. That, that, feels a little bit strange not to have an explicit license that is not public domain because we've all heard, or at least I've heard, um, that public domain doesn't, that's not a valid legal argument all over the world. Um, many times there is a, there is a um, expectation that, that there is an explicit license for things and saying, oh, there's no license, it's just public domain, that's not enough of a license, which is why, again, Creative Commons Zero at least says, well, there's no license, it's just public domain, except there is a license and it is CC Zero. So, I don't know, I, I, I find it surprising that this, um, that this repository uses public domain because it just doesn't, from what I've understood, it does not port internationally, but whatever. Um, it's still a bunch of cryptographic library, uh, or, or, you know, uh, yeah, libraries and header files and stuff that you can use if you need to 
do cryptography uh, from your C++ code. That is everything that I've got for this episode. We've gotten through all of the Cs, so now we'll uh, start with the D, as in Delta, or as in DB48, in the next episode. Thanks for listening. Talk to you then. Thanks for listening. My name is Klaatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, tips, or just to say hi. My email address is klaatu at slackermedia.info. You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not klaatu, at mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music on bandcamp.com or on gnuworldorder.info in the archive you'll find a music directory containing the album from which this music has been extracted until next time thanks for listening and keep the source open Questions?